Hi, and thanks for joining the second edition of the Create Opportunity podcast featuring Cindy Kent. Cindy is more than an inspirational leader, successful businesswoman, and role model. She's also a 2013 Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute, member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, and the Minneapolis St. Paul Chapter of the Lynx, a member of the Executive Leadership Council, and the Committee of 200, an invitation-only membership organization of the world's most successful women business leaders. Cindy joined 3M a month before I did. In her career leading drug delivery and healthcare systems, changed how so many experience the organization. Cindy loves to learn. With a Bachelor's of Science in Industrial Engineering from Northwestern University, an MBA in Marketing and Master of Divinity from Vanderbilt, Cindy is Six Sigma Green Belt trained and continues to learn every day. Join me as I visit Cindy at her 3M office to learn more about her purpose, her path, and her words for the next generation. Thank you so much for joining us for the Create Opportunity Podcast. When we looked at the list of people that we could possibly share their insights, you always come to the top of my list as a mentor, a sponsor, advisor, every category I think you could have. Wow, thank you. Your career is just inspirational. And I thank you for taking the time to share your pathway, your lessons, and your passion on this podcast. Uh, thank you, Meredith. You are way too kind, and I am grateful. And I told you earlier, having a podcast or doing a podcast and just being in a position to be able to share anything about my journey that would be helpful to others is on my bucket list. So thank you for also helping one of my dreams come true. So this is terrific. Thank you for having me. Thank you. <laughs> so now I want to hear about your passion and your purpose. Absolutely. So I really take purposeful leadership very seriously. It, it's something that I think about, you know, I can't say on a daily basis, but pretty doggone close to it. And my goal and purpose in leadership and in life is to be a point of light and hope. And I would even go so far as to say um, some of it may be to a certain degree destiny because the root word of my first name is Cindy and it's not Cynthia, it really is Cindy, but the root word means bringer of light. And so the fact that, you know, I, that I embrace that, I want to be a role model. I'd love for my role to be amplified, not necessarily because of my own achievement, but of what it may mean to others, whether it be little girls of color or people of color or women of showing them what's possible. And so being a person of light and hope is something that I think about actively and intentionally about how do I do that and how do I get better at it um, each and every day. Oh, yeah. I love it even about getting better each and every day. Oh, yeah. That's really powerful. Okay, so as you think about our audience, mm-hmm. and as you said, little girls who are, are looking at you and at your path, and you've done so many things that I think we don't have a lot of role models to look to and say, you've done that. Mm-hmm. When you look back, what was your big moment in life? 
Well, I'm hoping that the big moment is still ahead. So, but there have been, I can't say that there were any one, but there has been a series. I think one of the earliest pivots, the earliest pivots was when I was 14 years old. And one of the things that may be helpful background, you know, I didn't grow up in a privileged environment and I certainly celebrate anyone that has, but my mother was 18 year old senior in high school. My dad was a 17 year old uh, junior in high school. When when I was born. And one of the things that I still model, my mother's now deceased, but I'm fascinated. And I asked my dad on a regular basis, like, how did you guys know? Right? Because there are things that they did that I can point back to and definitively say they shaped me forever. And so a couple of those, like education was always a, a given, was a must in doing well in school. Um, and I can remember maybe three examples um, and ending on one of the most pivotal ones at 14. But I can remember very early on, uh, it used to be that my dad gave me a quarter for every single time I got a good grade in school. You know, it went from E's and then an A. And at sixth grade, I had um, gotten enough raises that I was getting a dollar per A. And so I had always started planning on what I was gonna do with my money. And I bring my report card home and basically give him his receipt for, for my money. And he said, I'm, I'm not paying you, right? Uh, at this point, I'm not paying you. And I was so distraught because I'm like, wait, 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 we have a contract. <laughs> you're not living up to your commitment. And he said, you're at the point at, in your life and the age that you got to want it to do it for yourself, not because of the financial reward of getting good grades. And I thought, I'm going to show him. I'm not, I, I actually think it was about fourth grade. And I said, I'm going to show him. I'm never going to get another A and he's going to be sorry. He's going to double my allowance, uh, my grade induced allowance. And you know what? I went to school and insisted that I wasn't going to raise my hand. I was not going to participate. I wasn't going to do my homework. I could not do it. Like I, I was pulling my hand out. I can remember trying not to, uh, participate and I couldn't do it. And he was absolutely right. I brought home straight A's the next semester as well. And so I think that was a moment of realizing I got to do it for me and, and have, and, and that continues to fuel me. I mean, the fact that I'm rewarded handsomely for my work is really important, but that's not my thing. I'm more about what it allows me to do in my community, what it allows me to do in my family than the reward and the trappings of success in and of themselves. I think the other thing, again, um, that I attribute, so my, my mother was the what I call the guardian of all things education. My dad fueled my imagination. I remember back in the day before uh, TSA, he used to take me to the airport. And I'm talking about, you know, we did it for years. And we would go to the airport and he would say, we look at, we pick out, you know, where the plane was going that was interesting. We'd watch the people and we create stories around who they are, what does their families look like, where do we think they're going, why are they going, the business people were going for a reason or, you know, parents with their kids and we'd make up stories and it really did fuel my imagination. I think the other thing, which sometimes gets me in trouble, um, it, but I think it works for me more than it works against me. But the other thing is they gave me my voice and which is the biggest gift that any parent can give their kids is a right to have an opinion and a right to speak. And from the time I was five, probably until about 12, uh, every single Friday night, we had a ritual and we called it family forum. And it worked the same. We would go out to dinner, we would have an activity, whether it was a movie 
or the fair or wherever it might be, even if I had friends in, uh, over for the weekend. And then we come back to my little small house in the den and just the three of us, because I am an only kid, and we would talk about things that we wanted to change about the family dynamic, which was kind of crazy, right? As adults, and they're talking in front of me. Now I realize they probably created and contrived their feedback, but it felt real to me as a kid. And I couldn't go to bed unless I weighed in on something that I wanted to change. And so whether it was, I remember conversations about, you know, do you think we should expand my family? Now, I realized I probably didn't have a voice in that, but I thought I did, right? Uh, when I was ready for a sibling, even though that, that never happened. Um, or what, you know, I, I remember the time where I didn't think, and this was about six years old, that I should go to bed at 8.30. And so it's like, fine, stay up. And I did that for a few days and I couldn't get up to go to school. And then it's like, so let's talk about the consequence of that choice you made in family form. And it didn't even matter what the topic was or what the consequence. At the end of the day, what it, it has instilled in me to this day is you have a right to your voice. You have a right to your opinion. And here's the part that I don't control, but I, I try to demand you have a right to be heard. And being a brown girl from the South, insisting on being heard, that plays in a number of ways. But that's really important to me because it it, it happened so young, endured so long uh, during my formative years that it's part of my wiring and DNA. And I, I don't respond well when, when I'm not heard or overlooked or my voice is overpowered in meetings or situations. And then the last thing that was when I was 14 is that I lobbied, you know, people said, well, did your parents send you off to boarding school? I went to boarding school for a year. The intention when I left was to stay all three years from sophomore to graduation. But it was my doing and really what I wanted was to set myself up for collegiate success. And so not many people in our in our neighborhood and we were very involved in our church community went away to school. It went, let me take that back. Went to college at all. And then certainly if they did, they didn't go away to school. And those that did more often than not, unfortunately, ended up coming back home and because they were homesick. They, they went to community colleges and, and finished, or in many cases, they didn't continue. And I was horrified by that. And I, I was horrified by the possibility of failing in college. So I'm like, okay, in my own little 14 year old mind, how can I prepare for going away successfully in college? Uh, at that point, three years from now. And so, and this started when I was uh, a freshman, as a, as a freshman in ninth grade, and I researched and became a part of a program, got accepted into a program called A Better Chance, which takes um, high performing, but low income profile uh, children of color and sends them away to boarding schools at these uh, college preparatory schools. And so um, I worked with my guidance counselor, who's now deceased in my public high school, and we put together my application package. I was writing uh, essays that my parents thought were for my homework at school. And once I got in and once I got a full ride, then we pitched to my parents and I wanted to go 600 miles away to boarding school. 
and I did and they supported it and they got a lot of criticisms I mean this was early 80s and nobody sent their kids away not not our folks right from from Tennessee sent their kids away and they took a lot of criticism and heat for that but it was again in the in the spirit of let me explore my opinions and and um, they understood my rationale for doing so that I needed to prove it to myself that I could be away and it was one of the hardest thing and I'm thinking for them and for me to let your only child your daughter at 14 go 600 miles away so I went to boarding school in Richmond Virginia St. Catharines and these were the daughters and it was an all-girls school college preparatory and of the titans of industry their fathers most often because it, it was that environment were still to this day had their names on buildings all over the world and here was the valuable lesson as my friends parents were sending private jets in to bring them to school or to take them from school during breaks. What my father offered was he wrote me handwritten letters every single week. And when I started playing basketball on our basketball team and my grades were good enough that I didn't have to go to study hall, my basketball colleagues was like, don't read your letters from dad until we get out of study hall. And I was like, really? And we would crowd into my dorm room and we would all read my letters from my father, which I still have. He always ended them saying, go for the goal. And I couldn't figure out why they were so enthralled with those letters from my father because they got planes. All I got was a letter, right? And, and that was one of my most valuable lifetime lesson is money does not buy you happiness. Again, going into how I feel about my relationship with the trappings of success, it, it's I appreciate it, but I don't worship it. And I know how to live without it because I have most of my life. And one of, I remember one of my friends named Ann sharing with me, she said, Cindy, if I were to get a letter or gift, I have learned not to call my father to say thank you or my parents to say thank you. And I said, why is that? And she said, because it would not have come from him and he may not even know about it. It would have come from his assistant, Joanne. And so the fact that your dad writes you these letters by hand and encourages you was something that they did not have. And so to me, it shaped, it shaped what I think about family, what about I think about support, what I think about success, because success and being alone is not how I want to achieve. And so bringing my family along with me, of uh, making sure that I keep my relationships with my friends. I mean, I've got diehard friends that have been my oldest friends are my best friends from high school that we've been friends since I returned. So to wrap that up, I proved that I could be away very successfully. As a matter of fact, I was nominated to be one of the peer honor council members that tried cases of, of uh, ethics for the high school. They, uh, because I wanted to spend more time with my family, they threw in as part of my scholarship free trips home every every three times a year, I think, um, and one to have my family visit me, which was extremely generous and gracious. But to me, it was the experiment and I had proven the experiment. Could I go away? be successful and happy and thrive. And once I could check the, the the checklist on all of those, I came home to finish my last two years of high school with my family. Yeah, so. Okay, so Cindy, thank you for sharing about really the decisions that you made to really sounds like take control of your education. And as you think about then the next step coming out of boarding school, mm. how did you decide and how did your education connect to your career path? Absolutely. So um, just amazing. I, I 
look back and think it was completely serendipitous, but it, it couldn't have been. There was definitely a divine hand along the way. So when I came back from boarding school, I went to a public school, but it was the first academic school in Nashville called Hume Fogg. And we'll have to talk about that at another time because um, my husband and I are going to be or have sponsored a philanthropic gift for a new science center that they're going to be dedicating. So all about science. But we came back to the high school and I thought I was going into liberal arts and love liberal arts, but I wanted to be a psychologist, theater major, I don't know, something just creative. And I remember as we started to take all the college uh, preparatory tests, the SAT, ACT, et cetera, that, uh, and looking at colleges, that my guidance counselor, again, the guidance counselors and teachers are a consistent role, but took an active role with my mother, who I already told you was the, the general as it relates to my education pathway always had me in a summer program and when I was talking about my majors I can remember Miss Solomon who's now deceased as well saying to me you're a little brown girl from Nashville Tennessee who excels in math and science you will be an engineer like I just I can't remember those conversations and she circled back to my mom and had this conversation gave her the rationale and once mom was on board it was done it was a done deal so uh where I got a choice is well you could decide you know what kind of engineer you wanted to be and I was just uncertain because it was not in my domain of what I was interested in exploring. Uh, but true to my mother's passions and fashion, she uh, worked with me. We found a program at Georgia Tech and went to Georgia Tech, I think uh, the summer after my junior year. So it was tests were done, but I was applying, uh, in the process of applying. And went to Georgia Tech and were exploring majors. And interestingly enough, they exposed us to lots of majors, chemical engineering, electrical engineering, et cetera, civil, mechanical. But they didn't have anybody on the panel that week. I think I was there four or five days from industrial. And we were in the student union with a chemical engineer who had signed up to mentor us that week. And she was talking to one of her friends about her summer internship. And she was talking about time and motion and making these operational processes more efficient. And my eyes lit up and I was like, well, what kind of engineering are you? And she said, industrial engineering. I was hooked, like hooked, and then started pursuing and looking at schools that had industrial engineering. So when it came time to apply, I'm a minimalist in that way. Uh, let me find a really great school that I could get into. And the, they, there was a formula back then. And the formula was what's your hope school, your dream school, what's your safe school, and then something in between. And so I remember applying and my guidance counselor came back and said, Cindy, you've got three dream schools. And so, but that, you know, I, and the, what I thought was a safe school. And I laugh now because I ended up going to Vanderbilt for graduate school, but that was my safe school. And I thought it was safe, not because of the rigor or academics or being able to get in, but because it was in my hometown. And, but they did not have industrial engineering. So I applied to Vanderbilt as a Kimmy and then Georgia Tech and Northwestern as industrial engineering and ultimately chose uh, industrial engineering at Northwestern. What I can say now, I have had nearly a 30-year career in healthcare. I started in pharma. I was an engineer in pharmaceuticals, went to MedTech at Medtronic here locally, and then now at 3M. And 
each company and, and specifically being in healthcare is so science rich. And even though I went back to graduate school for both business in marketing, as well as in divinity, a master's in divinity, which I'll get to in a second, which was helpful as well. Having an engineering background and a technical mind and being able to appreciate the richness of the science. One, you get mad props and support from the technical and the research and development teams because they know that you appreciate what they do and honestly make an effort to understand what they do. And then as a moving forward as a general manager, being able to at this point in my career, I've pretty much spent time in the majority of the functions that I now lead. So I came out of, of college and went into an engineering role design, designing research lab and had my very first mentor sponsor. There is a difference who shaped and said, you are bright. We'd love to see, have you explore other career options. And so 18 months after starting my career at 22, I went off and did sales in Detroit, Michigan for Lilly, came back after that and did a two year stint in human resources, went into marketing, the skies opened up, the birds began to sing. That was my passion for life, loved marketing. And it was at that point, five years into the company that I decided to leave and go to graduate school full time and am so blessed and fortunate that the that the company supported me. I got a call from the CHRO, which is the chief human resource officer for the company, informing me that the company wanted to sponsor me for school. And I'll be honest, pursuing a divinity degree, which I wanted to do for me, I was so confused by that. And I said, you know, I'm getting a divinity degree as well as a master's in business. He says, yeah, I'm aware of that. And I said, you wanna pay for that too? And he said, yeah, we, we do. And I'm like, okay, you're gonna have to explain this to me. And I'm sure, you know, as as we all learn never to look a gift horse in the mouth, I get it. It was so surprising that I wasn't as savvy and smooth as I typically was. And I will never forget his words to me. He said, we can go get leaders from any business school in the nation or the world. But what we can't teach is the empathy and the way that you lead and the way people are inspired and follow you, even at a lower level of the organization. We believe that your divinity training will only refine and enhance that. I thought that was just insightful and brilliant. I was overwhelmed with the support. And quite frankly, I think it did what they intended for it to do. It endeared me to the company and that they were supporting my goals in such a visible way. And even though, uh, and so I went to Vanderbilt, that program didn't exist then. It is now an official joint degree program of working with the deans from both schools to create the JD, MD, or sorry, the uh, MBA, uh, MDiv program and my Master's of Divinity was in pastoral care and leadership. And I can look back not only in how my STEM and engineering background has shaped me, particularly in healthcare, a science-based company now at 3M that has much more than, than healthcare, as you know, but also the divinity training, because at the end of the day, organizations are a compilation of people and made up of people and understanding what inspires them, what scares them, their hopes, their dreams. And there are times when people come into the door and sh into my office and shut the door and say, I don't know if I should tell you this is my boss, but I'm going through a divorce or I'm having a tough time with my kids or I'm struggling with fear. And to be able to kind of go off the executive grid to talk to them about those things are a gift. 
that's largely informed because of not only my personal empathy, but also the formal training that I received in divinity school. So in many ways, my educational background shapes and informs how I show up as a leader every day. Wow. Yes. Man. I mean, and you couldn't have known how that would be useful. No, I didn't. I thought I was doing it for two spheres. Mm-hmm. I, I really did, Meredith, see these as two universe, mm-hmm. uh, universes. And I didn't know how and when or if they would ever cross, right? Of, well, I'm going to pursue, because I am an ordained minister outside of work, I'm going to pursue the divinity training, even though it was never required because of my particularly um, religious affiliation. It wasn't a requirement. But it gets to something, you know, that I would advise to young people today. Whatever you are, whatever you choose to do, whatever your passions are, be the best at it, right? Be a student of that thing. And you want to show up as good as it gets because it is competitive. And so I did it for me. And so the fact that the company supported it, but what has happened over time is that they weren't uh, separate at all. I don't think we can compartmentalize ourselves. I don't think we can compartmentalize our lives. And so they become to they have come to be fused in a way that very much shapes and informs. And, and the thing that I appreciate and laugh at now that we have an increasing number of millennials in the workforce who are driven by purpose, who are driven by inspiring leaders, right? That they can be real with and be authentic and transparent. All of those things prepared me to lead millennials. To lead, I hope all of us are after the same things, which is life fulfillment and work as part of that fulfillment factor and a sense of security for your family. But it also resonates very strongly with them in a way I, I have to tell this because it was so uh, interesting and funny and I am off my notes at this point, but I was recently in India and I absolutely was inspired. We have a high number of our marketers in my team in India who are millennials and many very new grads in the first two years for which this is their first or second job out of college. And I took a big group to dinner and um, the women in particular didn't want to come up. The guys, they we had a team dinner before I, I left and the guys were all standing around talking and one of the senior women managers came over and said the young women want to talk to you and they're afraid and I was like afraid of me I'm not scary right but again that positional difference does make a difference in being conscious of that so at any rate I took all the women the millennial women to a corner it's like we're just going to have girls time and I can remember the very first comment of one of the young ladies who is our digital content expert who is doing a phenomenal job and she says you are so cool and you got so much swagger we've never had a leader with swagger and I said I'm going to put you on the phone to call my daughter and tell her I am cool with swagger but that to me, it's not that you're after those things, but that my style and what's important that we could still get work done and yet resonate in a real way. Kind of going back to that mod- motto for me of being a point of light and hope that there are women of color and yet they can resonate with a leader who is is their senior. And so that was one of my personal moments of this makes me happy. And the, hey, yeah, you are doing something right. Yeah. I love it. And it sounds like really as a millennial, like they say for me, I think it's recognizing the multi-dimensions mm-hmm. in you because I think 
a lot of times you do see people that have a very specific path. Yeah. And that's not the case for a lot of us. Yeah. So what I hear in your story is not only that authenticity, but also a real curiosity that you found things you were interested in and you pursued. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I heard you provide your advice on, um, from a business perspective, mm-hmm. sharing that and not separating yourself from your workplace. Um, but it sounds exhausting. It yeah. sounds <laughs> So when you layer on your pastoral care and your science background and your life experience, mm-hmm. what's your advice for self-care doing all this? Yeah, so let me just start with saying it, that has to be intentional. It is easy to get um, overwhelmed with your own life, your own interest, because you can't go chase every single thing. So I think the first thing is prioritizing what is most important right now. And it doesn't mean you are allowed to change those over time, right? So if it's about parenting, there is a point in our lives that it's about creating and 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 the caring for your kids. And that is okay and it's allowable and off-ramping and on-ramping and getting more fluid in that. And so I'm a big believer in um, the Sheryl Sandberg model of making your partner a real partner and using your community. And I was liberated by a personal mentor of mine, Kim Nelson, formerly that just retired from General Mills. I can remember being early in my career in my probably mid to late 20s, listening to her on a web stream at the time and she was talking about coming back to work after having her kids and she said I don't feel guilty by that and and she said and I've got enough resources to outsource and so if you need somebody to go buy dinner I know that the purchase meals or the home deliveries are really big now and as long as everybody's eating and everybody's healthy it is all good and not hold ourselves to the guilt that comes with not being able to do everything is I'll do everything just over a lifetime, not in the next couple of months. But there are some practices like what I eat matters. You'll see here's my kale and berry smoothie that I try to start the morning. So I am not as good as I'd like to be in my workout and my physical care because I'd like to go in the mornings and in the evenings I'm just too exhausted. And usually three nights a week when I'm not traveling, I'm, I'm having business dinners or connecting with people and use my dinners for that time. Um, So what I eat matters as a priority and working out when I can, but I I need to get better. That's on my to-do list. Um, Also, I would say that um, my daily prayers and meditation and mantras are also a must-have. Showing up and and the mindset that we bring um, to the day, to the organization. If my morning is off, the whole day tends to be off for me. So being intentional about how I start my days is very, very important, not rush, not, um, you know, uh, uh, rushing through things or forgetting to be signs of gratitude and starting the morning with mantra, well, the same mantra, I was going to say mantras, but it's always the same one for me, um, is, is a way that I care for myself. I have to laugh a little bit because um, my husband and I were talking and something on his wish list is much less phone time, cell phone time. I'm working on that. I am addicted to my device. And so I was sharing that recently and you may have been reading, um, Ariana Huffington is doing a lot of work in that area with her company, Thrive Global. And I was at a conference that she was hosting this past weekend. And I told her and she walked me around the conference. <laughs> you know, I was like, I felt like, 
like an addict. Hi, my name is Cindy and I'm addicted to my cell phone because she was sharing it with everybody. And one of the things she's talked about for executives in particular is being able to disconnect, leaving your phone in another room. She has these phone mobile beds that you actually tuck your phone in and it charges overnight by laying it down. Um, and so I, I, I told her that I would try. I told her that I would try, um, but no formal commitments, just in case my husband is listening. So um, that's something that I could probably work on getting better at. But yeah, self-care, and I'll say this because I learned it in divinity school. Self-care is your first ministry. That if you are not your personal best, and if you are not taking care of yourself, there is very little left to give of anybody, whether it be your family, your employees, your environment, pursuing your passions, or even to yourself. So I really do take that seriously, but life happens and we get caught up. And sometimes we've got to learn to call our own self-care fouls, right? You fouled out, right? And make it uh, try to do better daily. And, and that's a constant thing for me is, you know, every day's not perfect. Every day's not even close but I do make a commitment each day to start over. Cindy, is there a mantra that you use to help you during the day? Yes, thank you, Meredith, for asking. Several years ago, about three years ago, I read Deepak Chopra's work on spiritual leadership. And one of the things he uh, espoused there was to have these intentions. And I had never had them yet. I had positive sayings, but never really my intentions, which I crafted into a mantra and honestly have refined over time. And so I thank you for giving me the opportunity to share it with your podcast listeners. Today, I am happy, healthy, wealthy, and wonderful. The favor of God is upon me and I am the favor of God. Today, I will live out my purpose in the earth to be a point of light and hope. Today, I am my very best self, mind, body, and spirit. Today, I will use my time, talent, and treasure to positively and radically transform the lives of others, however small that interaction may be. Today, I will leave people, places, and things better than I find them, and today, I will be a magnet for positive, productive people who are changing the world, for indeed, I am one of them. Thank you so much. Thank you, Meredith. Everything that you have shared has been a blessing. And I know I look forward to listening to this in the morning because, you know, your point about self-care, sometimes when you can't do it for yourself, it helps just to cheat and use somebody else. That's a great tip for me. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you you for sharing the the kind of path that you've had and and how it has been just kind of a natural outpouring of your spirit and really listening to that voice. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing the steps to your own marathon of the journey. Thank you. And I will say as one person, and I know anybody who hears this and is touched by the power of your voice, we're all rooting for you. Oh, thank you, Marilyn. And... You know, I think with every win, you get a, a new idea of what's possible. So Absolutely. thank you for taking care of yourself. Thank you for telling us how to take care of ourselves. And thank you for spending the time with us. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And your win is my win. So I'm rooting for you too. Thank All right. you. Thank you for listening to the second edition of the Create Opportunity Podcast featuring Cindy Kent. Save this episode in a place You'll look when you need to borrow someone else's light and love. Thank you, Cindy, for
for sharing your intention and your time so generously with me and my audience. Each episode, we promise to get better and better. Follow our journey, ask questions, and nominate a future guest of the Create Opportunity podcast by visiting co2020.org. On behalf of the entire team behind the Create Opportunity podcast, we'd like to thank our generous sponsors, the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, Leverett Weeks. To receive the next episode of the Create Opportunity podcast in your inbox, subscribe at co2020.org.